because of the nomination of John Carlos Saez to the office of deacon, it is right both constitutionally and biblically to consider the work and qualifications of the office. And that's what I propose to do this morning in a summary fashion. This is an important matter in the life of any church, including this one. So we should reflect upon our brother's gifts and graces and compare them to the scriptural requirements for a deacon. We ought to fast and pray in the weeks ahead. But first, we should refresh our minds with how the head of the church has defined the office and who he says is fit for it. Now this is necessary because men frequently corrupt the purity of Christ's ordinances, including church government. For example, in some religious bodies, the deacon is not a servant at all. He's a clergyman in training. In other groups, women as well as men serve as deacons. In still others, deacons are given the authority of elders who then collectively lord it over the powerless pastor. Many of you come from churches with that as a background. And even true churches may err in placing men into the office. So knowing our own spiritual weakness, this morning I intend to remind you from Scripture of the major parts of the Bible's teaching about the office of deacon. The word deacon means, as most of you know, servant or attendant. Sometimes it referred to someone who served tables. It's a very common word from the time of the apostles, both inside the Bible and outside. In the New Testament, it frequently refers to an ordinary helper in a whole variety of contexts, such as a household servant. But the New Testament also uses the word deacon as the name of a church office. The office is defined and described in two passages in the New Testament. We've just read them. First, in Acts 6, and so we'll look at that first. And remember, although the word deacon as a noun is not here, the word as a verb to serve is here. And this really appears to be clearly the beginning of the office of deacon. So, lessons from Acts chapter 6. I believe at least four important truths about the office of deacon are found here. First, its duties are a delegation of apostolic or pastoral work. That's very obvious from the short story. The duties assigned to deacons are actually a delegation of apostolic or pastoral work. The leaders or rulers, and both of those are Bible words. The leaders or rulers in the church are elders or overseers. But because they must not be distracted from their primary work of praying and preaching, Christ has ordained servants for them. They're rulers in the house of God, and they have servants. They're called deacons. That's clear in Acts 6. They take part of the work for which pastors are responsible, and they relieve them of it. 
deacons serve <coughs> elders. Now, they serve other things as well. We'll see that. But they serve elders. Deacons are not the rulers of the congregation, but they are servants of the under-shepherd, of the chief shepherd of the church, Jesus Christ. Perhaps you can see from this passage why some have historically summed up the work of the diaconate as serving the poor, serving the Lord's table, and serving pastors. Right? Three works of service, three deaconings. And that's not a bad summary of the New Testament teaching about the work of the diaconate. So that's the first uh, duty from this, the, uh, or uh, teaching of this. The duties of a deacon are a delegation of a pastor's work. Secondly, that means that these duties are fundamentally spiritual. Deacons are not secular money managers. They are not first and foremost physical building supervisors. They are not janitors. The work they do is part of an elder's job description. But when things get too busy for that elder, the deacons spring into action and they take care of these things. So they must be men with spiritual gifts and graces similar to an elder because they're delegated some of that work. Work that is for the health, peace, and unity. Yes, for the spiritual good of the local church. The deacons must not be chosen based on their financial success or job attainments. Instead, we see, and here's the third truth from this passage, they have spiritual qualifications. Deacons have spiritual qualifications. The apostles didn't say to the church, choose out for yourself some men who have um, restaurant experience. I mean, if they're going to be serving tables and taking care of the poor widows, we, we really ha we must have someone who's run a, a large-scale restaurant operation before. They didn't say, make sure you find yourself the president of a food service corporation. That's not what they said. They said, we need the most spiritually mature men we can find. We need men full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. They needed reputable men who had wisdom. They had to be mature, proven, and holy. Men old enough and scripturally literate enough to be counted wise. So that when strife entered the church, and it did, right? Uh, you, you do understand, you know, my mother-in-law hasn't eaten in three days. And you local people, uh, your moms are quite full, thank you. This is a spiritual problem. <laughs> this is not just a, we need some better, someone better at the mechanics of food distribution. That's not what that is needed here. So that when strife entered the church and people began to pick sides, they could righteously navigate everyone through those troubles. These are men who have to be full of mercy. 
Men who have a heart like Christ for the poor, the widow, the orphan, the overlooked. These men should love to relieve the needs of the saints. Fourth and finally, see in these verses the confirmation that the diaconate is not merely a gift or an action, but an office. These men were chosen by the people. They had to meet qualifications. They were approved by the apostles. And they finally received a formal public confirmation. The laying on of hands meant that the apostles' agreement or blessing and their work was transferred to them. When the priest laid his hand on the head of the sacrificial animal, what did that picture? The transfer of sin from the people to the sacrifice. Well, that's what's happening here. The laying on of hands says, we agree, we approve, and we lay upon you these responsibilities. All right? So deacons are church officers. They are not merely those who have a special concern or gift for helping others in the church. Now, I hope that they have that. <laughs> but many people, in fact, we should all, to one degree or another, be servants. But we're not all officers. All right? As officers, they have a real authority. Delegated, but real. And so as men charged by the church, verse 3, they have real authority over the matters given to them by the church, by the apostles, by the pastors, to manage. Right? So those are four lessons about the diaconate from Acts 6. Now, there are obviously some things in that passage that, that don't uh, directly correspond to our experience today. We don't have any apostles in our midst. No, we don't, in case you were wondering. No, we don't. Okay. They're the foundation of the church. Christ doesn't keep building the foundation for 2,000 years. He lays the foundation. And then pastor teachers and you and I, as members of the church, we build each other up in the faith. But we do have pastors, pastor, and he's one, and we're a fairly sizable group, and he doesn't have enough time to do everything. And, and so there's a good correlation here. Uh, the, the, our two deacons can definitely relate to that, <laughs> to this, all right? I'll just say, brother, I need help. I can't get this done today. I need you to help me. Thank you. Right? So as you pray in the weeks ahead, as you consider, our brother, think about this. Say, do I believe he can do this? Do I believe he fits with these four truths taught here? Right. Now let's move to uh, 1 Timothy, where the qualifications for the ministry are set out very plainly. I've divided these qualifications up into four categories. We'll move through them fairly quickly. Beginning in verse 8, 
we have four specific character requirements. So everyone who is being considered for the office of deacon has to meet these four qualifications. The first is this. They need to be dignified. Some of your translations may say worthy of respect. That's an excellent translation. That's a, that's a really good way to transmit what's, what's trying to be the meaning here. Worthy of respect. When I think of this brother, do I say, I respect his life. I, re I find him respectable in these areas. This is really the equivalent of the phrase of good repute back in Acts 6. It's one of the reasons I think Acts 6 is talking about deacons. But here, it's not just of good repute. There's also in this word a sense of gravity, of, of soberness. A man nominated for the office of deacon should not be known as the church clown. He should not be a silly person. I don't mean he doesn't laugh with his children, doesn't tell jokes with the men, doesn't enjoy a good time. I don't mean that at all. But this is a man who understands that the greatest thing in life is to be right with God and all of the spiritual realities that surround that. And therefore, life is serious. Life isn't a game. Life isn't just for entertainment. Life isn't about how much you can amass and he who has the most toys at the end wins. None of that nonsense. No, he understands that Christ and the church are of the greatest importance in his life, his mind, his time, his thinking. That's a man worthy of respect. A man grave. Now that would have been the old-fashioned word. That's probably what the King James says, for those of you who have it. Grave, right? Sober-minded. Now, because he is a man who is worthy of respect, because he is, has a good reputation, because he takes seriously his Christian profession, we find that there are three things that do not characterize him. This first one is really kind of a catch-all. The next three are three specific things that do not characterize a deacon. First of all, he is not double-tongued. In other words, he is sincere in his speech. He doesn't try to manipulate others by his words. He's not deceitful. He has a proven track record of speaking the truth. It doesn't mean he never makes a mistake. It, never, it doesn't mean he never misspeaks. But it means that he follows what Christ says. His yes is yes, his no is no. You can depend on what he says. He is not double-tongued. He doesn't go to one party in the church. He doesn't go to the, um, the Greek-speaking Jews and go, oh, you have a, a really valid case. And, and then he doesn't go to the Aramaic-speaking Jews and go, oh, you're the ones who are right. He, he doesn't do that. He doesn't divide. He doesn't speak out of both sides of his mouth at the same time. He says the truth in love with self-control to everyone. 
So you, you need to ask yourself, can I trust what this brother says? Do I believe I've been you know, purposely misled regularly? So that's the first one, not double-tongued. Secondly, not addicted to much wine. A deacon cannot be a drunkard. The modern secular word would be alcoholic. I'll use drunkard. A deacon is a man that if he does choose to partake of alcohol, he must control it. It must not control him. The emphasis here actually isn't on the wine or the alcohol or what he's drinking. The emphasis here is on his addiction, his idolatry. <laughs> he can't be that. He has to be master of whatever he puts in his body. Whatever legal and lawful substances he takes, he must not abuse. God's creation is given for enjoyment, Paul says to Timothy. But we are not to be filled with those creations. We are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And a deacon must be this. He must be full of spiritual fruit, not full of the fermented fruit of the vine. All right? So, he must be dignified, worthy of respect, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, and finally, not greedy for dishonest gain. Now, why is this important? Well, because obviously, in many cases, deacons deal directly with large sums of money. And they must be trustworthy. They must not love themselves and their own sinful gain more than the good of the churches, dare I say it, actually Christ's money. I've known more than one unsaved young man who would steal during worship services from people who left their coats or other things out, but who gave the money back when someone said, look, I know you did it, and I don't care if you steal from me, but you need to understand, you're not stealing from me. If you take money from the plate, the box, the this, the that, you're stealing from God. You're stealing from Christ. A $20 bill came right back. Yes, that's right. That's right thinking. <laughs> a, deacon, a deacon can't struggle with those kinds of things. He has to know this is not his. You know, Judas managed the money of Christ and the apostles. The things that they had for their own needs and for the poor, he kept the purse. Literally, he kept the purse. <laughs> he oversaw it. And John says in his gospel that he used to dip into it for his own good. There's a reason he didn't want certain things, or he did want certain things sold for money rather than anointed to Christ because he knew that would add lots and lots of money to the purse and he had access to that. Judas was the deacon of the apostles and he failed at this point and went to hell because it was this love of money that was the root of the sin that caused him to sell the savior of the world for 30 pieces of silver. Deacons must not be Judas's. 
they must not have too strong a desire for monetary advantage. Their character must be what Hebrews 13.5 says. Let your character be free from the love of money. Well, those are four requirements of character that every deacon must meet. Now, no deacon has ever met them perfectly. But in the judgment of charity, brothers and sisters, you need to decide, has, does this brother have this character or not? Next, uh, there are requirements of character. Secondly, in verse 9, there is a, require, a requirement of doctrine. He has to hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. What is the mystery of the faith? Well, this is a phrase Paul likes to use. And what he means by it is what one man has called the beautiful grand way of referring to Christianity's distinctive truths. In other words, it's the full news of salvation in Christ. Now, that was hidden. Not totally, but mostly in the Old Testament. It was told, yes, but in shadow form, not in reality form. It was shown in pictures and types, not in the things themselves. But when Christ came, the full blaze of the glory of truth shone brightly. And so there was this mystery that is now fully revealed. When Paul uses the word mystery, every time he's referring to the fact that it used to be a mystery, not that it still is. Amen. Christ has answered all the questions about mystery. In the New Testament age, the mystery of the faith is now known. It is no longer a mystery because the glorious light of the gospel of Jesus Christ has been revealed. And so now the faith that is the content of the entire body of Christian doctrine can be known, and according to this verse, it must be held by the deacon. It must be held by the deacon. They don't have to be teachers, but they have to understand and be honestly committed to the Christian faith. That means they must be regular students of the Word of God. They need to read their Bibles. They need to pray over their Bibles. They need to study their Bibles. And you need to ask yourself, is our brother that? Is our brother that? You'll notice there isn't anything here about whether it has to be done in Greek, Hebrew, English, or Spanish. You can do it in any of God's languages. All right? And this needs to be held with a clear conscience. A deacon can't say, uh, yeah, 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 I believe, I, I agree with the confession. Mostly. On the parts that don't personally offend me. On some days. I mean, there can't, there can't be any of that. You just have to say, I believe the word of God. 
and in our case as a church, and the, this confession, which we believe is a true and accurate, not perfect, but true and accurate summary of this big book of Bible teaching. Right? He has to agree with the church doctrinal statement. But even more importantly, he has to live in accordance with it. The faith truly believed will be lived. Not perfectly again, but sincerely and consistently. So there's a requirement of character. There's a requirement of doctrine. Thirdly, we see that there is a requirement of testing in these verses. That's verse 10. Let them be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. So they aren't voted into office and then tested. That's not what the text says. It says just the opposite. It says test them first, then they may serve as deacons. Now that is something that our two existing deacons and myself have been doing with John Carlos for quite some time, for well over a year. And we believe that he has passed that test, essentially. Now, and, and so you need to reflect on that and think about that. Think about the times. He, he does lots and lots of things that you never hear about. All right? So some of you may literally scratch your head and go, I, I don't know a single thing he's done. He would be very happy to hear that. Because he's not after his own glory. He's after the glory of God. I might add our other two deacons are really sneaky and good at that too. In fact, there are times I don't find out until weeks after something's been done that they did it. They didn't feel like they needed to crow to me and go, hey, we did these three things this week. Now, I really like it when they tell me, but they often don't. Right? Those are men who, who love you. They're not loving applause. Right? That, that's, not, that's not how they get paid. Nor any other way, I might add. <laughs> except in the life to come. Mm -hmm. That's good. There'll be some deacons with crowns of righteousness so heavy, I doubt they'll stay on their heads. Right? That's a good thing to pursue. Yeah. Now this testing needs to go on for some time. And it's described as, they need in, in this time, they, they're described as blameless. Now that's a frightening word. Because it sounds like perfection. And we all know that if perfection is required of any office, there would be no office bearers anywhere in Christ church, anywhere in the world, for all time except Jesus. Blameless doesn't mean that. It means consistent. It means solid. It means you can't put a charge against him. That doesn't mean he's perfect. It means that when he wasn't, he recognized it, confessed it, and he moved on. He fixed it. Study the word blameless throughout scripture. I think you will see that it's not actually perfection. It is a high standard of obedience. But it's someone who can't be rightly charged. Well, finally, there is a set of family requirements. This is found in verse 12. Let me read this because this has been the subject of, of considerable struggle for some folks. And I, 
I think this is really an easy verse, and you just need to understand it as simply as it reads, and, but we'll talk about it, all right? Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. I would recommend that these verses be taken genuinely, and uh, as we ordinarily would take words, but not in an excessively <coughs> over-literal way. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I, I've known men, I, I know men, who look at verse 12 and go, this means that a deacon must be married. There can be no single men as deacon. And um, he has to have been the husband of one wife. So if his first wife passed away in an auto accident and he remarried, he can't be a deacon because he's a husband of two wives. And um, he has to have children. Um, if he only has one child, he's not qualified to be a deacon because it says children, plural. So he has to have at least two children. Now, I hope you find that stilted. I hope you find that unnatural. Paul doesn't go on here for three chapters explaining all the intricate details of every possibility of how a man could or could not be in every situation in life. He's just taking the normal situation saying, I'm assuming Jewish and, and Greek men of this age, mature enough like this, or uh, Roman men, are, are going are gonna to be married because they were overwhelmingly married. Single life was not... <laughs> was not common. And, and if you have a wife, you have children. I mean, that's just normal. And, and often in those places back then, they had servants, or they had extended family, or they had lands, or they had, even if you're relatively poor, you might have had that. Slaves had slaves. So right? this is just normal life. This is not some, well, if we read this precisely enough, we'll only find three people in the world who meet this qualification. No, I, I urge you to just take this as you would ordinary, in the normal, literal sense. Now, when people say, well, he, he, he can't be, he, he can only have had one wife. In the Greek, as many of you know, this is just the phrase, he is a one-woman man. Literally, that's what it says, one-woman man. The emphasis isn't on how many wives have died in childbirth and he's remarried. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's simply saying he's faithful to this woman. He's a one-woman man. The same phrase is used of the elder, and very interestingly, at least in my mind, a few chapters later, it's used in that order of widows. Of course, it's reversed. A widow doesn't get to be that. She doesn't qualify for that work unless she's been a one-man woman. Oh, well, clearly, what Paul was writing against was women in Roman society having more than one husband. No, that was utterly unheard of in the culture of the time, whether Roman, Greek, or Jewish. It simply didn't happen. That's virtually never happened in the history of the world. That's not what Paul means. He just means they have to be faithful to their spouse. 
And frankly, that's a lot harder than how many times you've been married because of uh, deaths or events outside of your control. You see, a man being considered for a deacon, a man being considered for the eldership, a woman being considered to help in the church, she has to be someone who has shown faithfulness to her marriage covenant. So here the deacon must be true to his wife. He has to be dependable as a leader to his wife. He has to have sustained loving care for her. He should be devoted to her. You should, you should think to yourself, oh, yeah, there's no question he loves his wife. That, that's, what should, that's what should strike you. Not detailed questions about odd oddities. And he is supposed to manage his children and household well. So he's got some skill. He's got gift and grace that show if he's placed in a similar situation, which is the spiritual household, he will do a good job with that. This is why when men come to me and say, uh, Pastor, I, 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 I think I'm being called to the ministry. I, I think I want to do that. Um, I work and I've got my family and I'm really having a hard time studying. I feel like this is getting in the way of meeting the qualifications to be, to be a pastor. I almost always say to them, no, you've got this backwards. Your main qualifications are how you do as a mature Christian man at work with your wife and with the children. That's what all the 16 and 17 qualifications are for for an elder. Only one of them is apt to teach. Now. You know me, I'm not urging you, I'm not urging us to put men in the ministry that are stupid, that don't know their Bibles, that aren't well read, that haven't studied hard. You know me. But the spiritual qualifications are, are the preponderance of it. Well, it's the same thing here with the deacon. This is a crucial test. How does he do with his wife, with a home, with the, the things God has given them? You know, is he careful with his car? Or does he have three accidents a year? Because he just does crazy off-road stuff. Or whatever. I mean, is he dependable in these things? Does he flirt with other women? Would he rather be out with the guys instead of home with his children? I mean, it's those kinds of things that, that we're trying to assess here. And again, that's really important because it's those things that so closely parallel the work he's called on to do in the spiritual house of God. And he must do it well. <laughs> he must not, must not just do it, but he has to do it well, it says at the end of the verse. So he, he must do it competently. It, it doesn't mean he's never made a financial mistake. It doesn't mean he's never lost his temper with his wife or been impatient with her. But it assumes that he learns and grows into a mature blamelessness. In other words, a deacon must fundamentally succeed at these things. All right. So, those are the qualifications. Character, doctrinal, family, 
testing. So what's the use or the application? Well, it's, it's very obvious, and I've really already given it to you. As you reflect on this, as you talk about the sermon, as you ask questions, as you pray, you take these things and the knowledge of our brother that you have, and you ask God to give us all one mind about yes or no. It's really that simple. Some of you know our brother really well. You have a special responsibility to pray and think through and help the rest of the congregation. Some of you, if you don't know him at all, now's a really good time to start, all right? Let's pray. <clears throat>